Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Caloria, and you're listening to the Gadget Lab podcast, where every episode is International Women's Day episode. <laughs> I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Ariel Pardes. Go women! And Lauren Good. Resident woman over here. <laughs> um, this is the weekly podcast where we take you through the top tech news of the week and break down the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about. But really, it's not just about gadgets. It's about a relationship with them and how they impact our lives. That's right. And we also talk about the companies that make those gadgets, the absurd things that happen in those companies, and the way those companies affect our world. We will get into that in so many ways later on in the show. We also have a special guest, Jessica Powell, who was at one time the head of PR for Google. Since then, she has written a thinly veiled fiction novel about a giant Silicon Valley tech company. I wonder who that could be. Is now a regular <laughs> contributor to Medium, has been published in the New York Times and other places. Also, she has a lot to say about the commercialization of International Women's Day. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, or even if you're just tuning in for the first time and you find yourself enjoying it, tell a friend, would you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Smash the like button, as the kids say. Yeah, yeah. Leave us five stars. But seriously, leave us a review because we love your feedback and it really helps. And where can people make those reviews? They can make them on iTunes. They can make them on uh, the Google Play Store mm -hmm. or I guess, what is it? Google Music. I don't know. Whatever Google calls it these days. Yeah. You can also go to our website, mm -hmm. wired.com, where we have a landing page for the podcast every week. Mm -hmm. And um, it's kind of hidden. But if you go to the bottom, you can leave a comment. But first, let's go through the tech news of the week. That's All right. right. I will go first. Uh, the thing that everybody in our world is talking about is the, the Facebook manifesto. On Wednesday of this week, Facebook co-founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg published a 3,200-word blog post about his vision for the future of the platform. In the written piece, Zuckerberg calls for a pivot to privacy. He observes that the fastest growing method of interaction on the internet is through private messaging, stories, and small groups, and that sharing and interacting through the public features of Facebook, like the newsfeed, are becoming less attractive to its users. 
Zuckerberg says that making the switch on Facebook would require building a completely new platform. Um, after he published this, our editor-in-chief, Nick Thompson, interviewed him, uh, and then Nick Thompson and Issy Lepowski put together a post that takes us through po- possibly the reasons why Facebook is doing this. There's basically there's a lot going on here, but the the consensus among people who study Facebook and based on Zuckerberg's own writing is that the company is going to be investing a lot more effort and attention to the private products that it owns. Facebook Messenger, um, WhatsApp, and the private groups on Facebook. And they're mm-hmm. going to be working to make those products more interoperable. So if you want to send somebody a message and you're WhatsApp friends with them and you're in Facebook, you will soon, hopefully, according to Zuckerberg, be able to send them a message through the platform, regardless of which tool that you're using. Mm-hmm. And that things that are public-facing, like the newsfeed, are going to be uh, deprioritized in the company. I have three thoughts on this, three quick thoughts. The first is that it does strike me as funny that every time Mark Zuckerberg writes something, people say, 6,000-word blog post, 5,200-word blog post. Man, this yeah. guy is prolific yeah. in addition to running Facebook. He does write a lot of ver- verbiage, though. Okay, the second thing <laughs> is that if you have been following along with Facebook's uh, sort of recent blog post, earnings calls, earnings reports – then this may come as no surprise to you. The company has been suggesting for a while that it was going to increase its focus more and more on not just the mobile experience, but mobile messaging stories, which are tied to ephemerality, and that it thought that private groups and community was going to be a big part of Facebook's growing platform. Now, the one thing that it's not saying that is just a personal observation of mine is that it seems as though Facebook Blue, the regular Facebook newsfeed, has become a little bit of a wasteland. Mm-hmm. And this is very anecdotal. I don't doubt that we are living in our own bubbles and we have our own filter bubbles and each of our feeds are very different. But I tell you, when I go on Facebook these days, it's just like there is nothing to keep me on that, that newsfeed for the most part. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I'll see things pop up in my newsfeed that are part of my private groups, and then I'll tap on that, and mm-hmm. then I go into my private groups. Uh, it's also it is a for me a one hundred percent mobile experience now, that possibly may have a lot to do with the fact that people are spending more time in, in stories and more time in Messenger and less time in the newsfeed, just because those are mobile native tools. Um, the two big things that I think we should think about going into the future with with Facebook when they make this pivot is that, one, um, it is going to have a pretty big effect on how effectively Facebook can monitor activity on the platform because those tools push people into a private realm. There's a lot of talk, both in uh, his interview with Nick Thompson and in his piece. Zuckerberg mentioned several times that end-to-end encryption is really important for him and really important for users on the future of Facebook. And, of course, if a conversation is encrypted and private, you have to rely on metadata and patterns of behavior to see what that person is up to. So if there's somebody who's engaging in harassment or somebody who's just engaging in bad behavior in general, it's a lot more difficult for them to monitor that. The other thing is that if everything's private, it's more difficult for them to see what you're talking about. Therefore, it's more difficult for them to target you with advertising. So it's going to be sort of two big things about Facebook. I'm sure a lot about Facebook is going to change if this happens, which most likely will. But those are the two big things that are going to change. Right. And you can guarantee we will be keeping track of all of the changes and you will hear about Facebook probably on every episode of the Gadget Lab to come for <laughs> many weeks. You could ask Jessica about it. I'm sure she has thoughts. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, net neutrality is back in the news. 
Uh, Democrats on Wednesday introduced a bill that would reinstate the Obama-era regulations that prohibit internet service providers from throttling or blocking or discriminating certain content online. Um, The net neutralities were, as you may remember, dismantled last year by the FCC. This was a big to-do. Lots of people rallied against it, trying to get Ajit Pai, the head of the FCC, to reconsider. Um, Wired is all over this. It's a story we care about very deeply. Um, So it's exciting to see that it's uh, back in the news again. And the new bill, which comes from Ed Markey in Massachusetts and Mike Doyle in Pennsylvania, would basically just reinstate those old rules um, that prevent internet service providers from throttling certain content, but also prevent the FCC from canceling them again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's still got a ways to go. This is like very, very early days for the bill. Um, But it is a sign that the fight isn't over, that people in Congress really care about it. And it's sort of heartening to see the Internet rally against this once again. Mm -hmm. I always I always find it very encouraging when my Twitter feed becomes filled with people talking about fairness on the Internet Mm -hmm. and why we should care about the way that our Internet is regulated. Um, It makes me feel nice. This is one of those platform points that to me, uh, and of course we are a little bit biased in the sense that we work in online content and we cover the internet, uh, but it's really hard to imagine that anybody just looking at this with any bit of common sense or practical knowledge of how the internet works here in the United States would be against this notion of net neutrality and would be for the idea of a company like Comcast being able to determine which content you should see faster online. It just seems like it's against consumer interests. And it seems like at this point, I mean, certainly uh, people get sort of tricked all the time into pushing platforms that are against the best interests of themselves and their constituents. But it seems like at this point, uh, yeah, like you wouldn't, you would want to prohibit ISPs from throttling or blocking content, right? Yeah. It's pretty... Yeah, I saw a great Twitter thread from our our friend Alexis Ohanian um, about this exact topic, which is he was pointing out that some uh, people on Twitter were were tweeting at him about how they were against net neutrality, um, and he identified these people as being right wingers. And his Twitter thread said, "Look, do you really want Comcast?" To 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 basically make MSNBC the only news site that you can read on your basic internet package, because that is exactly what dismantling net neutrality translates to. Yeah. Like, it, it, like how, how how could anyone <laughs> sort of support that future? Right. It, it, it translates exactly into an erosion of consumer choice. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. All right, well, let's see how that develops. We'll certainly be following it, so go to Wire.com for more. And in other news, Airbnb has made what is likely its lar- largest acquisition ever, so it bought Hotel Tonight. You guys ever used Hotel Tonight? I haven't. I have, actually. I've used it in New York. I've you listened to it? a lot of podcast ads for Hotel Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon to the Gadget Lab podcast. Yes, <laughs> Although now true. it'll be an Airbnb ad. So Hotel Tonight is a service for booking last-minute hotel rooms. And Airbnb bought the company for an undisclosed sum, although according to the New York Times, sources told the paper that the deal was close to the valuation of Hotel Tonight around its latest uh, round of funding. And so that was around $465 million. Um, Yeah, a lot of money. But also Airbnb has a private valuation of $31 billion. So, you know. Excuse me? Yes. 
$31 billion. That is correct. Airbnb is planning, said to be planning to go public later this year, and that is its private valuation. Wow. Yeah. So this acquisition is significant because it represents a push for Airbnb into more services beyond home rentals. It also lists some boutique hotel services right now, but by buying Hotel Tonight, it's going to be presumably offering a wider range of hotel services. Now, Ben Thompson from the blog Stratechery wrote a really smart blog post, and I feel like you could just say that like pretty much every episode. By the way, Ben Thompson wrote a really smart blog post, and now we're going to cite it because it's smart. But he, he pointed out that a lot of the traditional hotel booking services that you find online, like Priceline and Expedia, they're not so successful because they offer a really great consumer experience. They're successful because they pay a lot of money to surface in your search results on Google, right? They're some of the biggest advertising buyers on Google. And then once you're on there, you're like, uh, this isn't a really great experience or website, and then you get locked into some home, some hotel room you can't even cancel, and it, like the whole thing, right? What Airbnb has been really good at and has excelled at is offering a really great consumer experience, and they don't spend as much money on, um, you know, advertising online. They do a little bit more in traditional marketing, but you go to Airbnb and you pretty much know what you're going to get, with the exception of those like terrible horror stories. So basically by Airbnb buying Hotel Tonight, which is more of a, if you want to call it a traditional online find a hotel room service, Airbnb is really directly taking aim at some of the biggest competitors in hotels. So we'll see how it turns out. We'll see if the experience changes, Hotel Tonight goes away, if it gets folded into Airbnb. We don't know that yet. Um, but yeah, this whole like online travel space is, is super interesting. Have you all got the magazine yet? The Airbnb magazine? No. I think it's lovely. Yeah, it I'm, is. I'm just going to be honest. I really like it. I, I read it like almost <laughs> cover to cover. It was weird. And when I finished reading it, I closed it and I looked at it and I said, huh, that's some good marketing. You're not going to leave us for Airbnb, are you? No. You're going to leave the Gadget Lab to become editor of Airbnb Mag. No. I, I mean, if you were going to, though, now would be the right time. Yeah, <laughs> Right before they go right? public. I, I appreciate a good magazine and a good payout. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Just think of the ice sculptures you could buy. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's like, yeah, the ice sculptures. Oh, my goodness. Speaking of Silicon Valley craziness, should we talk to Jessica? Yeah. Jessica Powell ran communications at Google for many years before going through 837 different steps and deciding to ultimately quit her job. She then became an author and writer who last year published the book, The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. She also feels absolutely no need to upgrade to the latest and greatest phone, not even the newest Pixel. Uh, We're thrilled to have her here with us today in Wired Studio in San Francisco. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you also happen to be here on International Women's Day. Tell us why you love International Women's Day so much. I just think women are so great, you know. And and I know and I know a bunch of them. My so, mom was a woman. That's right. Yeah. You re- you wrote a great piece that published just last night in the New York Times. Uh, very tongue in cheek. It's an opinion column talking about International Women's Day and the commercialization of it. Give us a snapshot. I mean, I just I always find it so funny the way corporations jump on any opportunity to paint themselves in a good light. And it's it's no doubt a good thing that, say, Mattel is producing Barbies that are beyond the blonde-haired dolls that, that I grew up with. Um, but it is still funny because it still exists within this very set concept of beauty. So the Amelia Earhart doll, for example, has a very delicate, tiny waist. Um, and uh, and so it's, it's just it's very funny to see how it all translates. And then, of course, the hypocrisy of it all. Like you look at the banks um, and the grand statements that they sometimes make on International Women's Day. And then there's one of the greatest pay, uh, salary gaps 
within the finance industry of any of kind of the industries that we're constantly attacking. I mean, it's really egregious there. Right. You write, here's a sticker. You can walk outside of the bank. You're still going to pay 80 cents in the dollar. Right. But you have a sticker. Yeah. And that was free. So kudos to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also talk about uh, how you talk about a fast food chain that shall go unnamed, turning its logo upside down. I just want to let you know that just for you today, we made our Wired logo uh, a W for women. <laughs> so, yeah, very, very happy to have you on the show. Uh, it's funny, I got a pitch. I don't know if you guys have been getting pitches in your inbox, but I got one pitch for Inter- International Women's Day that was exactly to your point. Like, come for cocktails and buy designer jeans and get a facial. And I was like, yay, women. Yeah, that's what women really want that's and right. need. Right, <laughs> exactly. More designer jeans. Okay, But in all seriousness, we talked about Facebook earlier in the show because we can't seem to get around the show these days without talking about Facebook news. And earlier this week, Facebook had put up this Facebook messaging manifesto, as we've been calling it, this this, uh, increased focus on taking some of the public-facing stuff that's been on Facebook, putting it more into messaging and ephemeral stories. What was your reaction to that? And what do you think broadly about Facebook's communication strategy these days? I mean, on some level, I don't entirely know how to react to it in that uh, Facebook it, Facebook is in such a bad place that I feel like if they cough, everyone's just like, that cough is just a way to like get more data, that the germs are being released into the world are actually another way. It's an API somehow to like scoop up more data. There's so many conspiracy theories around Facebook that sometimes you kind of have to roll your eyes and realize that sometimes a cough is just a cough. I don't think that's the case in this case. Like They're not dumb. You don't go and shift an entire platform. And you probably, certainly with Facebook's track record and historical attitude towards privacy, I don't think you shift your entire strategy just because everyone is like going on and on about privacy. People have hated Facebook. If you look at the user, like the re- user research for years, people have hated um, what's going on with um, their data on Facebook. And they have no track record. I mean, they, they have such a huge track record of putting out these enormous proclamations about things. And then you get a year later or several months later or even a couple of days later and you realize it's actually something very different. Like a, a great example, it's a dated one, but I think it's a really easy one that a lot of people remember was when they launched Internet.org. And it was, I mean, just even the .org part of it, right? Like we're going to go and bring the Internet to all these poor parts of the world. And in fact, actually, it was something very, very different. Um, But they were overselling it and packaging it as something else. And so when I look at a lot of the commentary around the privacy stuff with Facebook from this week, you have people saying, well, really, this is an attempt to tie all their platforms together so that, you know, it's harder for regulators to break them up. Or, oh, this is really a way for um, them to not have to be responsible for all the bad content on the network. Um, And I think those always could be true, but I think particularly on that idea of, of pulling together, well, not being responsible for the content, WhatsApp, those platforms are under such scrutiny right now with regulators, and increasingly and rightfully so. It's hard to imagine that that will entirely, if it was just to get rid of kind of their their moderation role, like, I just don't think that would happen. So all this is just to say that I, and actually one more thing, if I may, is I do think there's some other master plan, though, afoot, because if it was just about trying to give people more private experience, I think groups on Facebook does a really good job of that. Like, that already exists, and people have really good experiences on that. And I think a lot of us who haven't gotten rid of Facebook, it's because we find a lot of value in the swim club thing or the breast cancer survivor group or whatever it might be. So there is a way to actually make a better private experience. It's just it would come at a cost to newsfeed. And second, if you were really that concerned about 
privacy and the people who are really concerned about privacy, the people who are really freaked out about privacy are the younger users and the people who aren't going onto Facebook, they're all going onto Instagram. So you could, they could have put more emphasis on Instagram, right? But I think they're so freaked out about Instagram cannibalizing Facebook mm-hmm. and the feed that they don't do that. So again, I just don't, I don't know what their master plan is, but I do I do buy into the theory that there's something more afoot than simply saying, hey, we're taking your privacy seriously. Do you think Facebook should be expressing more culpability around this? Mark Zuckerberg said something interesting. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but just in his manifesto the other day, he said, frankly, we don't have the greatest reputation for you know ensuring our standards of privacy, which if you think about it as a very passive way, you've put yourself in the passive. We're not perceived as doing good on privacy, but rather than saying we have fucked up, we didn't do well with privacy. Now, of course, when you were running comms at Google, I'm sure you encountered a lot of your own situations where you were answering very hard questions about privacy policies. So like, what tack do you think Facebook should actually be taking here? Like, How should they be communicating better? I mean, I think the biggest, the problem isn't necessarily how they, they do, I think they have a problem or have historically had a problem in how they communicate and that I think they oversell and that they don't, uh, they aren't sufficiently um, like accountable and don't accept accountability right from the start. But I think the bigger problem is a culture thing. Like it, to me, it's extraordinary that a lot of what you hear coming out of Facebook is the media are all against us, and and yes, some of the media is like over the top and some of the things they say. But you don't get to be everyone's worst enemy by having done a lot of good, and and there's just this sort of victim mentality there. That um, a friend of mine was at an offsite where um, a very high-ranking executive came in. And was just, and they were they were doing Q and A, and people were asking a lot of questions about things that had been in the media, and the executive was just like, you know, I'm I I don't want to have to use the F word, but I'm going to use the F word, and everyone leans forward like, what's this person going to cuss? Like, what does this mean? And the executive says, fair. F-A-I-R, it's not fair, and then goes on a whole thing about the media being you know against them. You know, like it just at some point you have to say we're not doing things right. And yes, there might be some like noise around here that's again like the coughing where everyone's misinterpreting it. But you have to accept that there's a problem, um, and then and then figure out how you move on from it. So anyway, I'd like my hope would be that they've hit some sort of rock bottom, that there's some sort of realization of that internally, and that they're starting to rebuild. But they also are going to have to accept that and expect that that it's going to take a really long time for for there to be any trust between users and the media and Facebook, right? They're going to have to do a lot of moves like this, which again, I'm not entirely sure is all altruistic and on behalf of users, um, before we start to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing this moment, not just with Facebook, but with a lot of companies where people are starting to say, we're not quite sure you're doing the amount of good that you say you are. Um, and I think that's happening with with Facebook, but also with Google, with Apple, with Microsoft. Um, this is one of the themes that, as I understand, inspired your book, this idea that so many startups in the Valley and big companies as well have these sort of grandiose claims of how they're changing the world and forcing connection and making us love better and live better. And your book sort of makes fun of that, um, as does much of your writing. I wonder if you think um, any of that is is changing or if we're sort of stuck in this Silicon Valley mindset where we have these absurd claims about what tech can really do for people. And then people just have to say, like, that's ridiculous. You know, I think we're in an interesting point where I think on the one hand, and in some ways this is good, the, a lot of tech companies, particularly the big tech companies, are becoming more professional and more corporate. 
Um, and part of that is good because I think it actually makes more likely to make them responsible stewards of people's data and um, have more respect towards, say, government agencies, the regulatory process, perhaps anticipate some unintended consequences of what they're building rather than just rush forward and build it. Mm-hmm. I think all those things can come with a certain element of super boring, suit-like, um, you know, office drone. I mean, insult your, like, Dilbert cartoon kind of thing. <laughs> On the other hand, of course, that's really, really sad because what makes this place so great is the innovation, that like the, the crazy questions that people ask, right, that then get, that, that lead to these startups or that led to these really large companies. That kind of thinking, you don't find that anywhere, right? And I think it, it's very synergistic, too, in that, if you're in an environment where people are thinking big like that and, and kind of going from first principles and saying, well, why can't why can't the sky be red, right, or whatever, um, you know, <laughs> no one should build that. Well, um, just, well, <laughs> um, you know, that, that um, like, when you're in an environment where people are doing that, you're more likely to do that. And that's really incredible. And so I think it's really kind of sad that we've gotten to this point where mm-hmm. I think our biggest problem with these companies, or not the biggest, but one of our great problems with these companies is that they keep telling us that they're not normal companies. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not big pharma. They're not big, you know, they're not finance. They're not big tobacco. Right, exactly. Right. And yet, increasingly, we're starting to feel like they are. And so there's this disconnect between the marketing, so to speak, and our, how we're experiencing them, and 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 that all of this, of course, and that all of this is coming out via the media. It's not the companies coming forward and saying, "We discovered this thing, we did this bad thing, and here's how we're going to make it right." It's more like the media discovers something, and if you think of Facebook, it's usually this didn't happen. <laughs> then you count like three, two, one, three days later. Okay, wait, some of this happened, <laughs> you know, um, and so I think we're in just an, an odd and unfortunate place. Um, and I, it, I do feel like I was just talking to someone yesterday um, who's at one of the really big companies, and she was talking about how it just feels like the the new employees coming in are very different. And that could just be one of those old employee things that, you know, you've been at a company for 10 years and all of a sudden, oh, it's not like it used to be. But I do think that when you look at um, how things have shifted in universities across the U.S. and so forth, people that before were going into, say, economics and then following a path towards, say, consultants or finance, they're now going into tech. And finance, if, and, and tech, for example, is now taking a lot of the same profile that finance used to. That's not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing, but that is a different profile than the, than the kind of iconic I go to Burning Man and every morning I wake up and I'm just like, how do I destroy capitalism (laughs) through coding or whatever, right? Like, it's a very different profile. You wrote a blog post on Medium recently that was great called 837 Ways to Quit Your Job, making sure I had the steps, the number of steps correct. Um, And it was about your experience as you transitioned out of Google. And by the way, I should mention that you are also just a very high-functioning person because you quit your job and then decided to go to grad school, give birth, start a company, and write a book all at the same time, which sounds like a great way to just quit your job and not relax (laughs) at all. That year was like a very unusual year. I didn't really decide to have birth either. It kind of just like (laughs) happened. (laughs) That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) I don't know how that works. My startup. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, Very big investment. So, uh, So, but talk about your process quitting Google and talk about why you decided to write that story, that Medium post. Um, Yeah, I... uh, it took me so long. It took me so long to, I had been unhappy for a while and not in, you know, when I was 20, whatever it was, 22, 23, um, I had a job I didn't like. 
And it was very clear to me I didn't like it. I woke up every single morning dreading going into the office. I went to bed being almost fearful of going into the office the next day. Like, that to me was a very different situation than being 30, I guess my issues started around like 38 or 37 um and and generally like generally liking my coworkers, generally liking my work but just having this increasing kind of like pit of depending on the day doom or anger or just like this constant low level like buzzing of something not being right um like this mild apocalyptic you know or like the cicadas when they start you know that sound and that's kind of what every day felt like um And but then it's really hard, too, because you sit there and I had worked in at that point a big tech company, Google, for 10 years. And in between that had a startup stint. I'd only been in tech. I'd only really and really this job, this job, the Google job was the only job I had done for most of my adult life. And um, and and I'd gotten to the point where all I was doing was working like I hadn't read a book in forever. I tried to start all these books and I would get to the end of the first page and I'd be irritated that it wasn't in bullet points and not like summarized. <laughs> and I was like, what's the point? You know, <laughs> um, you're like, you're too, too long winded. Um, I couldn't finish a book. I, like I would go to parties or to dinner and everyone around me would be talking about tech. All I would be talking about was tech. And I couldn't even figure out how to to relate to people outside of that. Like tech was almost this comfort thing because I didn't even know how to make, I still know how to make small talk, but, um, but you know, it, it, it was really striking to me. And then of course, like I'd get on a shuttle bus, I'd go to work or I'd get in my car and go to work. I'd come back. I had no interaction with all the people in San Francisco. And I no doubt I had some sort of overly romanticized notion of what that is to be, you know, part of the city and so forth. But still, I just, it just was starting to feel very dehumanizing. Um, and so I, I, I did like the classic and so dumb because what but I'd like I'd be I remember in meetings sometimes and I'd be looking around and being like I can't do this and I'd be looking on Google and just like signs you should quit your job or like should I quit my job and and like and in a really funny way particularly when you've been working in a tech company or specifically a tech company that does search you know all the different little tricks for how to do search really well but not in my case I would write out like the full sentence because I'd be like I want them to exactly understand <laughs> and I'm going to put the question mark here so they understand like I need the answer you know um and um and I, I would do the quizzes, and, and I think this is actually true for a lot of us, is that there was never, unlike that job that I had when I was 22, it, there wasn't, like, this super clear, of course you should quit right now, right? Like, I'd do these quizzes, and I'd be, like, 5 out of 10 or 6 out of 10, and they'd be, like, the big warning signs. I'd be, like, I don't have any big warning signs. Um, and, and But I wasn't getting anywhere. And then finally I kind of woke up and was just like, wait, the fact that you just keep asking yourself this question is something – and then it, and then the 837 steps are like is chronicling, um, in compressed form, uh, how I then tried to get first. I think to recognize that only I was going to be able to solve that problem. I kept on looking to everyone else around me or to the universe basically to solve it. To it's like some great exciting new job offer, or overhearing someone in a cafe like working on some kind of um, you know interesting product, whatever it was. I kept on just assuming that something external to myself was going to solve it, um, and which meant I didn't do anything about it. And then finally, I kind of figured out. And so the article's a bit about my process of how I figured out um, how to solve it. Do you think burnout's a real thing in Silicon Valley? Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, how... More so than other industries, though? I mean, sometimes we are in this bubble, right? So, like, do are we just seeing that or hearing that from the people we cover? Or is it, like, is that really unique in some way to this industry? I mean, I don't know if it's... 
it's certainly not only in Silicon Valley, um, but I also know when I was in my mid-20s, I was living in France working at a nonprofit where um, we were only allowed to work 35 hours a week. And I can say I definitely did not have burnout and read a ton and had a wonderful life. So I, I think there are definitely um, definitely industries and places where it is not expected. So anyway, I don't think it's only, the, it's only I'm sure finance is pretty brutal too, right? Um, uh, but um, I, I do think there's a kind of, it, it, it is a little bizarre to me the way that there's a whole culture around working all the time, work harder, um, work harder, work faster, crush it. Like just even suffer the language porn, we use right? to Didn't describe Aaron Griffith it. Call it suffer porn. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I, like I, that to me is, it's 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 horrific for anyone at any age. But I also think that when you start to get to a point where, and it doesn't have to be that you have families. Everyone makes different life decisions, but you get to a point in your life where you don't physically necessarily have the same energy as you did at twenty one. And yet, does that mean that the person who's 50 cannot be a good contributor to that company? Like, no, obviously not. Like, wisdom, the, the funny part, of course, of getting older is that you realize that that whole thing about the wisdom of the age is actually true, but you never realize it when you're younger, and so it's, like, totally wasted. But but there's a value to it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the thing about burnout in Silicon Valley that's maybe unique is that it's disguised under this cloak of innovation and ingenuity and being a part of the next big thing that's going to change the world, um, which maybe feels very different than sitting at a desk on Wall Street and saying, listen, <laughs> we're not changing the world. Right, there's an honesty sort of in the transaction. <laughs> yeah, right. We just yeah. want our ice This is hard work, but we're getting <laughs> yeah. paid boatloads, whereas something that always strikes me about people who work for, for startups and giant tech companies alike is that there's this thing driving you that's like, we're changing the world. Yeah. changing the world. And I, I wonder, um, now now that you've taken like a small step back, I mean, you're still very much in the tech world, but but having uh, quit Google, I wonder like if your perspective on that changed. Like, did you start to be a little bit less credulous about how important the work is and how important it is to like, you know, bank 80 hour weeks or whatever? Yeah, I think there are probably three things. First, I think that was already happening to me when I was at work after I had my first child. Because you, like, it is, again, everyone says it until you're in it. You don't really realize it. It is the hardest thing in the world to entertain, take care of, like, this little person that can't do anything. It is way harder than any, like, it, harder and maddening and, yes, with cute moments. Um, but then I get back to work and I'd be like, why am I debating this Gmail feature, right? Like, it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, Perspective. Right. And so th- there was that. Um, after I left I think I very much became some kind of new agey cliche of when I all of a sudden wasn't rushing. I mean, I, I used to have, and I think a lot of people can relate to this. If you and I had were supposed to have lunch one day and you canceled on me, I would have two seconds of being like, oh, that sucks. I'm not going to see her. And then I'd be like, but this is awesome because now I can get all this work done. Right. And I think so many of us have been in that. And once I was out of that and all of a sudden wasn't constantly rushing from one meeting to the next or whatever it might be. I had far more moments of just looking around. Like I was in the mission one day and a guy walks by with, um, a mission, the neighborhood in San Francisco, and this guy walks by with like a dog on his head, and then two seconds later, there's a woman wearing this like safe, like pentagram, and and I was like, whoa, is this? I think this is like San Francisco from 20 years ago, and how co- is it still like that? And how have I never noticed this, right? And you have much more moments of just being like that whole, like I say cliche just because I feel like it gets dropped as uh, you know it's like a buzzword, but I think it's a real thing, like mindfulness and being engaged with the environment. Um, and the final thing I would say that, that really changed after I left and that um, 
is I think I think a big big difference is you know after I left I started a company and uh, there'll still be moments where I'll be working at like you know 10 o'clock or something or wanting to get something done but it is so and this is such a no duh thing and yet it, it was a revelation for me it is so dramatically different having someone impose something on you at 11 o'clock at night Mm. or a deadline that works for them but does not work for you or it's arbitrary because they just send it to you and you assume that you have to get it done right away because they are your superior at work. Um, It is worlds of difference that from you've got this thing, it's yours, you want to see it succeed and you're like excited about it and so you're like oh I'm gonna hop back on and like finish this thing and I think the the when you ask the question about burnout I think at least for me what your level of control is over the chaos of your life really impacts to what degree um like what level of stress it puts on you yeah that's very true um, I would say that you made you made a very good transition uh, into. I mean, yes, you started, you founded a company, but also you're uh, you're writing a lot, right? You're you're publishing um, self publishing books, and you're writing for major media outlets. Um, journalism and writing is one of those um, professions that tends to reward age and experience in a way that the tech world does not. Yeah, I think so. I didn't actually t- all credit to Medium because I can't. I can't say I self-published it. They actually bought the book and, and published it. Oh, um, sorry. Sorry, Medium. <laughs> um, uh, but um, uh, yes, I agree. I mean, I think. I think. And and the I've been doing a lot of writing, and I don't think. I think a lot of the writing I've been doing, I couldn't have done if I hadn't. Had, doesn't have to have been in tech, but if I hadn't had that life experience to write about, right? Um, I was a reporter when I first uh, came out of school, and I was really, really bad at it. Um, and I kind of thought, okay, well, there's no clearly like journalism or writing is not something I'm good at or that I could do, even though I always liked writing. Um, and so then I went off in another direction. And so it's really neat to come back and be able to do it again and do it in a different way, more in essay form. And and that I think I'd still not be a great journalist. <laughs> well, it, you know, in fairness, I'm not sure how many people are super great at journalism straight out of school. So there's that, too. Um, one more thing that we wanted to ask you about before we let you go and before we get to recommendations is one of your popular Medium posts was about how you feel absolutely no desire to upgrade to the latest and greatest yeah. phone. Um, it says something about the way in which we think maybe some technology, hardware specifically, has plateaued a little bit. But it also says something about how our phones are really freaking great in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah. talk about that a little bit. What phone, you, what phone is this, right? Is this a, this this is a, a Pixel, Pixel 2, 2, which I just moved on to so like last year. two days ago. I know, and I love it. Like Pixel 2, I highly recommend. Are we jumping to recommendations? Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think you're absolutely right. There, there, I, there's still absolutely moments on any device that I've been on where I'm just like, why am I still doing this? Um, and it's funny also the moments where I blame the device, even though I should be blaming um, the con- – like I, one of my biggest – like irritations is the fact that I'm a New York Times subscriber, but I can't actually get to the New York Times if I click through on a link on Twitter. It doesn't know I'm a subscriber, even though I'm signed in on the app. And I, and I blame the New York Times for that for sure, but I also blame whatever device I'm using because why don't you, why is there not, like clearly there should there should be kind of a platform play there in terms of like logins. But um, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's really quite extraordinary how good they are. Um, and I'm perfectly, like, for the most part, I just need to be able to text. I need to be able to do some email. Um, Take great photos. Have, a, have some mm-hmm. good photos. 
Uh, and if you're in a city, being able to have like an Uber or Lyft, I think is pretty useful. The rest of it is all distraction and it's fine. Like I, it's fine to have it. Um, but I don't need like a slightly better version of that. I don't even really need a faster, like I think a lot of the really cool stuff that's happening in phones, um, certainly is like happening on the software side. And, and again, I don't, I don't feel like for the core things that I use my phone for, I don't think I really absolutely have to have that the very next day. But I also didn't feel like when I was a kid that I had to have the new Air Jordans, right? And so I, I recognize that there are people that that get super excited about that stuff. The only, like, you know, a lot of people, because of my line of work, our line of work, a lot of people ask us, like, oh, should I get the new iPhone? Should I get the new this? Should I get the new that? And my main thing with phones is that I always recommend that people uh, get a new phone if they're missing some big thing that has been a boon for security or privacy, you know, or in some cases the camera. Uh, like if they take a lot of pictures or the pictures look terrible and they're a good photographer and say, oh, you need a better camera, you should get a new phone. But I remember there was a couple of years where I was saying like, do you have a, um, a fingerprint sensor on your phone? No, well then you should get a new phone. You know, does your phone have right. Apple Pay or Google Pay, NFC of some sort? No, then you should get that. Because those are like significant life improvements, I feel like for me. And those people are missing out and maybe they're putting themselves at risk or they're just not getting as much out of the device as they could. Right. Think or those even are... smaller, like when they did mm-hmm. before. Remember I mean, back in the day before they even had copy paste, right? Before you could actually <laughs> highlight, so, like, yeah. which, which yes. is all the time, right? Yes, those yeah. were painful days. <laughs> well, my favorite is the phone I used, the phone I had, I don't know, this would have been like 2006, where, you know, it was like, I'm sure there's a name for this kind of phone, right? Where it's like every... Um, like the old rotary phones where every number has three letters on it. Yeah, and so you'd sit there <laughs> trying to compose a text would take you like 20 minutes yeah. just to be like on my way, you know. T9. T9. <laughs> it's a lost One, four, art, three. honestly. It is. But, you know, have you have you tried it recently? It's like riding a fucking bike. What, you the, just the never old forget one? it? Just oh, you mean? Using T9 to oh. compose a text? Have I tried that? I have not. Right. It's It's gotten a little bit better with autocomplete because now the phones that have T9 have much more advanced autocomplete. But, uh, yeah, it's like you try to send a text that way, and it's just like you pick it up in about 30 seconds. It's pretty amazing. Um, Well, you know, we should move on to the recommendations portion of the show uh, where we ask our guest to offer a recommendation of something that they enjoy. It could be a book, a movie, a podcast, a device, a A piece of – Plug-in. A (laughs) plug-in, a Chrome extension. Um, Besides the Pixel 2, what is your recommendation for us? For anything. Anything in the world. It could be a recipe. Do you know, I discovered the other day um, a way to make biscuits without using, like, buttermilk. And it was the easiest recipe in the world. Um, and it, literally, I'm, this is, like, super unhelpful, I should be saying. It was from this website. But it was all I did was Google buttermilk recipe. It was the first thing that came up. doesn't require buttermilk, which is, like, which is a hassle to make. It's not hard, but it's a hassle. And all you do is you just, like, freeze the butter for a second. You then shave it or grate it. And you grate it in there just like you would make croissants. Um, and it was kind of amazing. And then I hid a bunch of stuff in it so that my kids would eat it. And I felt like I felt like I was super mom because I was giving them a big white carbohydrate-loaded thing with all these other things inside. Wait, what do you hide in your biscuits? I tried, I tried different versions. Um, like I tried one with some pesto. I tried some with like a vegetable puree. I tried the, the thing they didn't eat them okay but like (laughs) that's not important the important part is that I tried and that the regular biscuits were really good (laughs) vegetable purees are great for pizzas 
So yeah. like you can make like a squash puree or uh, some sort of like broccoli puree and use it instead of tomato sauce mm-hmm. or mixed in with the tomato sauce. Yeah, I should mm-hmm. try that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like on an all white diet right now. Like pasta, <laughs> biscuits. And cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Homemade yeah. laminated. Yeah. Well, I guess that's pasta. Yeah. 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 And it's basically just all bread and rice is what they're eating at the I'm moment. I'm still waiting to grow out of that phase personally. <laughs> Maybe one day. You mentioned earlier that when you were at Google, you couldn't read books. Are you back to reading books? Is there anything yeah, you recommend yeah, yeah. right now? Um, what have I recently read? The Radiance of the King, Kamara Lay. It's like, um, like uh, African surrealist fiction from, I think it was probably the 1950s, 1960s. Amazing, amazing. And I don't know why, I mean, I, you can figure out why, but it's not a book that I think is really studied that much or that you hear about when you're in university or whenever you might be exposed to humanities. Um, that was an amazing book. I also really liked, on the more contemporary side, um, Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin. Excellent recommendations. Thank you. Ariel, what are yours? Um, I am re-upping a recommendation that I made um, weeks, months ago. Um, But first, I'll just give you the quick pitch. Is anyone in this room feeling old? (laughs) Yes. Every morning. Maybe like... We're taping this very early. Maybe like a little out of touch with the hot, cool things. Maybe like... Teen culture feels further and further away all the time, and you're wondering, like, how do I get a little more youth and vitality in my life? (laughs) One answer would be to start uh, sneaking vegetables into your biscuits, but I have an easier solution, uh, which is to get on TikTok, uh, which is this sort of nascent lip-syncing social platform that is a ton of fun. I recommended downloading it um, on the, the podcast some time ago. Um, but now I have an even better recommendation, which is to download TikTok and then read the excellent beginner user's guide to TikTok that our colleague Louise Matsikas put together for us this week. It's on Wired.com. And I think if you feel a little bit daunted about like joining a new social platform or you're like, I don't know how this works. Why are there all these young people lip syncing to songs I've never heard before? Read Louise's guide. Um, it walks you through how to get the most out of it, how to make an account, how to enjoy the videos, like a little bit of context of, about like why people are making these videos. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. Like I think it's a fun platform that f- at least for the moment still feels very artful and playful and genuine and good and not yet ruined by brands or advertisers. Um, Except for that problem they had with the children's, like, getting all the, like, not being COPPA compliant. But it's awesome, right? Like, it's also really awesome. <laughs> it's for, perfect for that. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they acquired Musical.ly. That's right. So then Musical.ly right. was yeah. hit with some, I think, $5 million fine or something for not being COPPA compliant. Right. Yes. But it is. But I agree. Like, it's so, super great also with, like, if, with kids, if you ever want to create stuff with them, they, mm. like, they get so into it because it's it's super easy to use, right? You can add all the effects it's and the music. It's so easy. It's really good. And it's, it's fun. And I think, like, I think it's important for people... Um, of all ages to be engaging with this kind of stuff. Uh, one, to just, like, know what's up, and and two, to, like, have fun. I don't know. Tech I, can be fun, you guys. It can be, I promise. It can be. I spent, I spent like, five minutes on TikTok uh, as a, a mid-40s man. I felt like a creep. I was like, wow, look at all these kids. Yeah, there are a lot of teen girls on there, but... <laughs> I love it. Good self-awareness, Mike. Good self-awareness. I like how you actually physically, like, moved yourself from the mic. Like, you didn't even want to talk about TikTok right now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, well, what's your recommendation, Mike? So my recommendation this week is an audiobook. It's the first time I've ever recommended an audiobook because this is the first time I've ever listened to an audiobook and actually felt the need to recommend it to other people. Um, it's amazing. It's the audiobook version of the Beastie Boys book. I bought this book when it came out at the end of last year. It came out right before the holidays. And it's amazing. I mean, you know, if you're somebody who is a big fan, are you a big fan of the Beastie Boys, Jessica? Yeah. Eh, okay, yeah. sure. Um, if you're a fan of the Beastie Boys, it's a fascinating book. It's their memoir. One of the members died. The other two, slash three, because Kate Schellenbach was in the band for a while, and she's in the book, and she's in the audiobook. Anyway, it's their memoir, so it takes you through their long history, their decades-long history as, like, kids in New York City to international superstars to arbiters of culture and to, you know, aging men. Uh, it's really fascinating, but the best part about the audiobook is that they got a lot of their friends, and, you know, they're, like, super cool, so they have the best friends. I wrote, I typed out a list so I can remember... These are all the people who appear in the audiobook at one point or another. You have the actual voices of the two surviving Beastie Boys, Adam Horowitz and Michael Diamond. And then there are chapters that are read by Rosie Perez, Steve Buscemi, Ben Stiller, Maya Rudolph, Bette Midler, Rachel Maddow, Will Farrow, Snoop Doggy Dog, Talib Kweli, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth uh, and Kim Gordon, uh, Chloe Sevigny, Chuck D., Ada Calhoun, Jarvis Cocker, and the Reverend Run from Run DMC. It's really amazing. Uh, very creatively done. Like, for example, whenever they go to England and they have a story that takes place like in London or in Birmingham, they have Jarvis Cocker, who's British, read that chapter. So you hear it in a British accent. <laughs> whenever they're talking about like uh, old school hip hop stuff that happened in the Bronx, they have Rosie Perez read it. So you get her voice in there. It's really just amazing. So if you already have the book, you should get the audiobook. And if you've listened to the audiobook, you should get the book because it's important to have the cross reference. Mm -hmm. Important to have both. So it's quite the lineup. It's 13 hours and it flies by. It's great. Can't recommend it highly enough. Beastie Boys audiobook. That's awesome. That sounds great. My recommendation this week, um, you know, I guess it's maybe perhaps in honor of International Women's Day, even though we've all agreed that's really commercialized and I'm not really thinking about that. But anyway, I just started watching the show Working Moms on Netflix. It's a Canadian Canadian series that was just brought to Netflix. It is created by Catherine Reitman and it is actually hilarious. It's really funny. That's all I have to say about that. I've, I think I've watched like five or six episodes so far, and I, I'm really enjoying it. The writing is very clever. The dialogue is very sharp. Um, it's about a bunch of working moms. Every every episode starts with a group of moms in a sitting around a mother's group, and um, I don't know, the, the, like it seems just fraught with all kinds of tension and dark humor, and it's. Uh, yeah, it's very, it's very good. Um, there's also a scene in one of the earlier episodes where one of because they are in Canada. Um, where one of the moms is going on her regular jog with her uh, child in a, in a jogging stroller and they encounter a bear, which happens to be one of my fears in life. <laughs> Those at Wired who know me know I sometimes go around the newsroom and ask people, would you rather encounter a bear or a shark? For me, it is bear. <laughs> no, for me, it is shark. Because bears terrify me. Um, really? Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast. We have a lot of podcast content to get through. <laughs> Watch work. If you, and, I, and by the way, this is not just a recommendation for women. Um, my fiance has been watching it with me, and he finds it very funny as well. So 
Is is this like a, a Netflix original or is it a Canadian show that Netflix picked up? No, or? it was. Uh, let's see. I don't believe it was a Netflix original. Uh, is it like one season, two seasons? I think it's one season. One, one season. season. The other thing so that's far. great about it is that um, everyone. This is going to sound like a backhanded compliment. Everyone looks normal. Like the thing is so striking when you watch TV from other countries is how, and not probably not every country, but certainly when you watch like British and Canadian TV, you like people look normal. Whereas in the U.S., everyone they look like they live in Hollywood and they're very buffed and preened and and attractive. And here, like they absolutely look like people that you would know, like slightly right. more attractive versions of people that you might meet. You know, right? Yeah, and also the I mean the dialogue is like it's it's like critical in that cringy way um toward like the people are towards each other in that way that like has definitely been deemed inappropriate now in most workplaces and social settings but these people just kind of like say it like one of the women gets into an elevator at one point and her terrible male boss says to her like oh i missed your weird mouth you know and you're like what <laughs> who would say that to somebody you know and, and like yeah there's like I, it, there's a lot of like cringeworthiness um but it is it's a really good show yeah that's great well, thank you. Yeah. Jessica, Everybody. thank you so much for being here. Thanks for it's having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. We're so glad to bring you onto the Wired podcast. Um, tell everybody how they can find you on the Twitter. Oh, uh, at the Moco. At the Moco? Is that like two Cs? Oh, no. It's uh, the. And then M O K O. Nice. And then the uh, book is The Big Disruption. And that's on Medium, but it's also coming out really soon in print and audio and all that. You can you can compare just yeah. like you did. And I'll do different voices for you. Do, do you have Rosie Perez on your audio <laughs> do you know, book? we haven't actually started recording the audio yet, and I'm kind of terrified of it because who would want to listen to themselves? So I'm hoping that they're going to, like, that Audible is going to come in with some sort of, like, Rosie Perez is going to read your book <laughs> because I, hope, I don't want to do it. Um, I'll do it. Perfect. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Great. You could be the main character. I could be. Sure. Don't don't I have don't I have a lovely speaking voice? Yes. Excellent. Great great voice for podcasting. Great. Also print. That's exciting. Yeah. Tell me yeah, on yeah. print. Yeah, yeah. Like what real is paper. Print? My parents will finally be able to read the book <laughs> I wrote. Can I get it on the Kindle? You can get it on the Kindle. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's already up for pre order, maybe. Yeah. Oh. This is exciting. Um, Arielle, how can people find you on Twitter? I am at Pardesoteric. I'm at Lauren Good with an E. I am at Snack Fight. And you can... T- why, why are you laughing? That's my name. I love it. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Um, <laughs> Says the person named the Moco. <laughs> it's a good spondy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab. Yes. And we will be back next week. Leave us a review.
Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From PR.